All right, good morning, Creekside. You all can have a seat. So, so good to be with you. Uh, my name's Steve, and we are in a sermon series talking about a theology of work. Um, so we're uh, trying to ask the question, how does our faith in Jesus, what does our faith in Jesus have to do with our jobs, maybe taking care of our kids, or whatever you find yourself doing during the week? Pastor Mark has been gracious enough to allow some of us um, who aren't pastors to come up and share about our experiences in the workplace. So I got to preach last week, which is awesome. Um, Mark interviewed Joshua DePea, um, kind of uh, asking him about his job as a physiotherapist. And then today, I have the pleasure of introducing you and interviewing um, one of my really good friends, uh, Delia Ursulescu. Can you help me welcome Delia up here this morning? So uh, if you were to ask me in high school um, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I would have told you a rock star. I wanted to play guitar for a living. That didn't pan out. I'm a little more mature now. And if you were to ask me um, now, I'd say when I grow up, I want to be like Delia. Um, um, Delia has built her own e-commerce business. And I think she owns a couple other businesses now. Um, I don't know what you do in your spare time. For me, I watch Netflix and I nap, and uh, Delia, in her spare time, uh, she's finishing up a PhD in theology and apologetics, too, so yeah, putting us all to shame, definitely. Um, but Delia is just one of the best humans I know. Um, she's been a faithful friend to my wife and I for the past seven years. Um, so Delia, I just, just want to ask you, maybe share a bit about what you do and how you've seen God working in and through you uh, in your business. Thank you, Steve. Um, I've seen God work in, in many ways in, in my own life and business and work, uh, but the moments, he's always at work, but I realize that I often miss what he's doing in me, around me, when I am driven by my own expectations, by my own uh, desires, by my own goals that are might not align to his uh, will for, for my life. Uh, so being in business, um, I had to come up with a plan, what kind of business I want to uh, design and build. And all my formal training has been in philosophy, theology, so I had no idea uh, what I'm doing when I started. Uh, I just started because I needed a job and I needed to make money. And if I were to use an illustration to describe um, my experience of being in business over the last 12, 13 years is the experience um, of pulling a sled. Um, when I put my, or I placed my significance in what I did, what I accomplished in business, it felt like pulling a sled uphill on grass and the sled was covered with these uh, heavy boxes. Uh, but when I started to find my strength in him, when I started to uh, discover uh, what I needed in him, when I put my identity in what he said in the Bible, it started to feel more like going downhill on the sled on snow, which is a lot of fun if you have never tried it. Um, as a kid growing up, we did that a lot. Uh, when we put our uh, significance in our, when I, we see our value in what he says, what he does, uh, what God says about us, it's so much easier to do everything we do. Um, I've, no, I've learned that there are two main drives that motivate us in whatever we do, either love or fear. 
when I listen to what God has to say about me in business, right, I am motivated by his love. Uh, when I choose to um, listen to what the world says and uh, what uh, the people around me say about me, what the business world says, it's, it's success. Uh, then I, t I start uh, being dr driven by fear, the fear of failure, the fear of not making enough pro uh, profits, not making whatever amount of money that um, people tell me I should make in my business. Uh, and I discovered there was a concept I studied for a while that helped me notice these two drives, love and fear, and that was the uh, idea of dependency. As human beings, we are dependent creatures. We are created by God. And dependency means that we have needs. Um, and I, I hated that uh, about recognizing that I am not self-sufficient, that I have needs, right? Um, however, when I realized that I have needs and that only God can fulfill those needs, um, it changed how I started doing business because it's easy or it was easy for me to understand the uh, physical need uh, or my dependency on God in the physical world. If he were to take the oxygen uh, out of this world, we would all die. Right? It was easy to understand that, but the emotional, psychological needs I had uh, were harder to understand. So I started to, um, I put my significance or I, I sought to fulfill my needs through accomplishment when I realized, no, uh, he's the one who can fulfill my needs. And when I place my uh, trust in him, all of a sudden it changed what uh, drove me, whether uh, love or fear. Um, and I, I think that kind of describes the main lesson I've learned. Awesome, thank you, Delia. Um, yeah, you can, please. Um, just my next question, what are some of the pitfalls and temptations that you see um, people fall into in your industry? We asked this question to Josh last week working in the healthcare field, and he talked about um, how, yeah, people over time, because of all the suffering that they see, people coming into hospitals or needing care, they, they can get discouraged and get hardened. Uh, but Delhi, I want to hear from you um, in the business world. What are some of the temptations or pitfalls that you see um, kind of other, other business leaders falling into? Yes, in, in the West, right, we uh, value independence. Uh, we value uh, being self-made. Uh, and I have a lot of people, I know friends or acquaintances that have these posters or t-shirts, self-made millionaire. And that was the message I received in the business world, right? Work hard and you're gonna succeed. If you don't take action, it's on you if you, if you fail. Um, and that was in tension with what the Bible says, that we are dependent creatures, that uh, we have needs. And again, I, I rejected uh, that for a long time. To recognize that I'm weak or I have needs did not feel very good. Uh, so I, I, I realized I still fall into that trap, even though I, I know it, right? I know that I depend on him. I know that he's the only one who can give me the strength to do what I do with joy and out of love. Uh, and I still fall into the trap of um, uh, believing that uh, I have to work hard and that it's me who accomplishes things, uh, the performance trap. Uh, so I see that very, very often around me and uh, that ties right to living out of fear or living out of abundance. And uh, I remember the story um, earlier this morning. Uh, I was at a conference and there were these Christian business people and one of the guys said, why are you sharing what you've learned in your own business with other people? Aren't you afraid that they're gonna steal your ideas and then you lose? 
Um, and I uh, responded to him, I've, I've, I've learned in that, f I, I lived in that fear as a business person. I would always keep everything close to my chest and never share, but it was, it, it, it didn't feel very good. And when I started to live out of abundance and trust in his provision, um, I started to experience abundance and have joy. And I don't have to worry about what's gonna happen tomorrow in my business. God is going to provide. So I have to ask myself very often, I ask myself, do I really trust that he will provide? Do I really trust that he's going to give me the direction I need to make sure I uh, accomplish the things I need to accomplish or not? Uh, and tied to that, right, is uh, maximizing profits, which is um, the principle in business. You have to have profits to survive. But as a Christian, uh, I sometimes have fallen into the trap of wanting to maximize profits. Um, however, uh, if profits become more important than people, again, I think that's an issue for me as a Christian. Can I build a business that um, values people more than profits? I think that's possible when I follow him, when I uh, work out of the love that I find in him, uh, when, I, when I trust in him. Thank you, Dalian. That's awesome. That's really powerful. Um, for us as a church, kind of my final question, how can we as a church come around and support you as we send you into the business world each week? For us to um, have help, right, to uh, uh, get the help we need, we, we have to first identify the needs we have. We have to know uh, what we need. So self-knowledge, understanding who we are, how God created us is, is part of it. As a community, we can help each other uh, uh, grow in our understanding of ourselves. And uh, my friends, my family, right, helped me over the time. And as I understand my, um, uh, my, my flaws, my pitfalls, uh, I'm able to go to him and receive the help I need. How can I receive help if I don't even know I need uh, something? Um, so working together, being open, being transparent, be being willing to build relationships takes hard work. Um, but if we're not willing to, we won't discover those things, that uh, those needs we have. We won't be able to go to God to uh, receive the help we need. So just building strong communities is probably one of the biggest things. Thank you, Delia. Well, I, I, I'm going to pray for Delia now, but also, um, just by extension, I want to pray for all of you who are here kind of working in businesses, working in a business world, maybe running businesses or, or, or working within one, that just as we send out missionaries into the world, um, um, we are really sending you guys out as missionaries into your workplaces to do, to do the work of God um, out there. So I want to pray, pray for all of you. So let, let's pray together. Father, we thank you for all the work that you are doing in and through those in the business world. Help them to know that they are sharing your love when they provide opportunities for jobs and for growth and for human dignity in the workplace. May they share your justice as they treat coworkers, employees, customers, and competitors fairly. And show us, Father, how we as a church can support those who are working and running businesses. May the zeal for justice and the spirit of your love, Jesus, pervade our lives at work and at home now and always. Amen. Thank you, guys. Let's give Delia a round of applause. Oh, man. So good. Um, thank you so much, Delia. That was beautiful and um, 
she's just been such a gift to our church family and to me, and um, just I'm thankful we get to hear from her. And thank you, Steve, for um, doing that interview and for your sermon last week. And um, we're all, I think, here for more Steve and his Canadian O's as he talks about uh, theology of work and all that. So um, I, I love that. I used that, used that joke last service, too, and I thought, nah, I'm just going to stick with it. It's, it's fun, you know? Canadians are too nice to fight back on things, so it's great to... Uh, anyway, so hey, uh, we're going to keep going with our, our, our sermon series on, on, um, uh, on earth as it is in heaven. And um, so if I haven't met you yet, I'm, I'm Mark. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm um, thankful to have you visiting with us. And um, we're, we're doing this series as a way to talk about um, this piece of our life where we spend so much of our time. Uh, it, our waking hours are spent so much of them at work. Um, some of you guys have jobs that you absolutely love. I consider myself lucky to be in that type of thing. Um, most of you are in jobs that you at least don't like a decent chunk of the time, and some of you are in jobs that, are, that you hate, that's, that just like steal your soul and all that kind of stuff. So last week, Steve set us up with this beautiful framework for um, theologically, like why does work exist and what is God inviting us into in all the time that we spend um, in our work lives. This week, um, I want to explain to you um, why it is that your job sucks, okay? So you have this, uh, you have this pain, this tension with your job, and I'm going to get into the theological uh, foundations for what, like, what it is to work in a fallen world. Our world is broken. We know that. It's the, the one doctrine in the Bible, people say, that needs no proof, right? We believe, yes, the world is broken and sin exists, and we're going to talk about what it looks like. Um, in 1985, Craig Newmark started his website called Craigslist, which is like, um, it has been a big part of my life in different seasons. Like it's this, this cool idea of a site where you just list out, okay, I have this to sell or I have this to rent or I have this opportunity. Um, I need someone for this job. And then the other pe- person comes in and, and sees that and they buy what you're selling or they rent it or they take the opportunity or they apply for the job. Um, this beautiful, like, connecting of people. And when, when Craig Newmark started this site, he started with the assumption, he says, basically, I just believe that because people are basically good, you can create a platform where they interact with each other, and then that's going to work out for the best. And I'll just say, like, he was partly right, you know? Like, I've, I've bought some bicycles and some cool things off Craigslist. Um, but he was also partly wrong, because his assumption is, because people are basically good, just get them interacting and everything works out. Well, that works and it doesn't work, right? Because you can buy bicycles on Craigslist. You can also buy drugs or human beings or whatever. You can also get scammed really creatively on, um, on Craigslist. The, the problem is he's going out and doing business and work in the world, but when you don't account for the fact that we live in a fallen world, um, we begin to see that, man, things fall apart really quickly. We uh, Doing what God has called us to do in this world requires us to pay attention to um, the brokenness as well. So that's what we're going to dive into. And to do that, I want to jump back into Genesis 2, where Steve left us, left us last week. Um, and he's showing that big picture of what God is doing in his work. Genesis 2 picks it up in verses 1 and 2. It says, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So here we have God creating this beautiful world, creating a place for human beings. He sets us um, into this world, and, and we see God just crafting the world, right? Forming it and filling it, as Steve shared last week. We see God creating this world. And so everything that we do, our work, is all a participation in the work that God himself is doing. 
Um, if you jump down a little bit later in Genesis 2, starting in verse 7, the Lord God then formed the man of the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. So we're seeing God um, creating this world, doing this good work, getting the, the, the ball rolling in terms of um, work and everything that happens in this world. But then we see God, he kind of pauses in the midst of all that. And in the dirt that he had created, he creates something special, which is us as human beings. Creates us to be special and unique, and we're shaped by his hands. He breathes his life into us. It's an incredible thing. It's another way of talking about that idea of God creating us in his image that Steve explored last week. Um, but he puts us in the world. We are then going to be makers like God is a maker. It's a beautiful concept. And God takes the raw stuff of his world and he shapes it into a garden, the Garden of Eden. And this is where he decides he's going to put his human beings. I'm, I'm going to craft this garden, shape it, make it something special. And into that, I'm going to put uh, my human beings. And what are we supposed to do with it? Jump down to verse 15. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. So here is the picture. Man, God created this beautiful thing. He created the garden, and he says, here's a human being. You're going to work the garden, and you're going to keep it. There's a, um, there's a reality we have to see here, which is this. There's no sin in the world at this point. Genesis 2, everything is untouched by sin. That comes in Genesis 3. That's where we're going in a second. Um, but before sin enters the world, before brokenness comes in, there's work in the world. I think what that means is uh, the, the, the mirror image of this comes at the end of the Bible when God recreates the earth. There's a new heavens and a new earth, and God's working and recreating that. I think that just like work existed before the fall of sin to the world, I think that work exists at the end of it. And I know I just ruined some of your days by saying that, okay? Um, you, can, you can find a theological rebuttal for it, probably. Um, but I think the picture is what we don't, what's hard for us about work is not the existence of work itself. That's what God does, and he has this beautiful um, model for us. It's the invitation we have. It's how we were made is to work and to function and to find joy and delight in the work that we do. It's the sin that makes it um, so crummy. And so we see this beautiful picture of God making the world, inviting us into the ongoing cultivation of it, and, um, and everything before the fall, um, work is good and beautiful. But it goes wrong. So th this week, today is Palm Sunday. Okay, we're getting ready for Eastern Sun Easter Sunday, which is uh, next week. And, and we celebrate the fact that Jesus uh, died for our sins. He, he rose from the, from the dead, and so he's alive forever and gives us new life through that. It's beautiful. Palm Sunday is the day that Jesus rode into Jerusalem. And he came in triumphant. He came into crowds of people just like celebrating him, welcoming him, him in as the coming king. They're applauding. It's like, it's like the kind of reception that Jesus as the king should have had coming to his people. And they're celebrating that. But the problem with Palm Sunday is that just a few days later, right, coming to, um, coming to Thursday as he has his uh, meal with his disciples, the Last Supper, and then one of them, Judas, goes out to betray him. And then by Friday, by Friday, the crowds are together chanting, crucify him, ready to put him to death. Palm Sunday is a reminder that even when things are good, um, they can easily be twisted and become evil. Uh, evil is always on the heels of good, and that's what we see in this story. So let's jump ahead to Genesis chapter 3, and here's where we get to see everything go wrong. There's the, there's the garden, but then we see the serpent. The serpent comes into the garden. We find out later that he is, um, it's Satan, and he's tempting uh, the people that God made. And he comes, and he's tempting Eve. Um, and so we pick it up in verse 6. It says, So the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. 
She took of its fruit and ate, but she also gave, uh, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So here we have the entrance of sin into the world, and what's basically happening is um, Satan's tempting them, and Adam and Eve are turning from God as the source of life and goodness and, and the good designer that says this is how creation is to be used. They turn from his idea of it, and they say, you know what? Maybe I should decide for myself what this looks like. So they turn their backs on God's design, and they decide they want to do it. Um, and in doing that, now they're rejecting God. They're making these decisions for themselves. What happens? There's this record scratch moment where um, they look around, and suddenly, they've been naked this entire time, but it hasn't been an issue. Suddenly, they're saying, I feel like ashamed of this, right? And they're, they're feeling out of place in the garden. They're feeling lost in the whole thing. And so in that we actually see work being affected. It's like the first thing, actually, that we see being affected by the fall is our working lives. We were in the garden to work it, to keep it. We were working alongside of God. We were cultivating the stuff that God made. But look at in verse 7, the end of verse 7 there. It says that when they saw that they were naked, knew that they were, they sewed fig leaves together, and they made themselves loincloths. The, the, the first profession to go wrong here basically is tailoring, I guess, where they're, they're designing clothes for themselves, and they're taking these leaves, and they're sewing them together. Now, they are working with the stuff that God made. That's beautiful. That's as God intended it to be. Um, they're working within the stuff of creation. They're doing um, the kinds of things that God would want them to do, I think. But they're doing it now no longer to lovingly cultivate um, and shape the garden and all this. They're doing it now to protect themselves, Right? They're, they're making these clothes, engaging in their work to um, hide from each other, to hide from God, ultimately to cover their shame. So it's still work, but now it gets bent towards different ends. The, the, whole, thing about, um, uh, the whole thing about the work that God's given us is it's meant to be this participation with him and this care of the people around us, the world that he's given us. Uh, it's meant to be this good and beautiful thing, but it gets bent towards human beings wanting to go it alone, wanting to do it for themselves, decide for themselves. I love that Delia brought that out in the story that she shared um, of, of just like the idea of like, we're supposed to be self-made. I'm supposed to do it myself. I'm supposed to accomplish it myself. This is a testament to who I am. And I think our task in this fallen world is to resist that urge to go it alone, to resist the urge to decide for ourselves and instead be uh, accepting that invitation that God gives constantly uh, to lean on him, to rely on him, to follow his path for the whole thing. You don't have to turn many pages in Genesis um, before you find a work going wrong again. So if you turn to a Genesis 11, um, what we see here is this is the Tower of Babel. And you see like humanity coming together and they, they take on this huge cultural project together. So it says in uh, Genesis 11 verse 4, they said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. So we see humanity, and they're coming together, and again, this is work, right? And this is like work on a huge scale. Like this is the high point of work so far in the book of Genesis, because it's everybody's working together. They can't accomplish this on their own, and so they're making bricks, and they're doing this whole thing, and they're like, we're going to build a city. It's a, it's a noble thing. It's a good thing. And like, let's make a big tower that like goes up to the height of the heavens. Again, like using the skills and the ingenuity and the, the stuff of the world that God made, and they're doing it. But why are they doing it? It says, Let's do it. Let's make a name for ourselves. They're taking the good task, the good work, and they're saying, let's do this so that we can show everybody how awesome we are, okay? And that is, I'm just saying, that's just so absolutely bankrupt. 
Like it's, it's the use of work, but to do it to show how good you are, it, you can see the folly in it here. In fact, God, I think, is, is being, like, they're being mocked here um, in verse, uh, what is it, verse 6. Um, no, I'm sorry, back in verse 5. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the children of man had built. So here they are on the ground. And they're saying, let's build something so impressive that its top is like up in the heavens. And everyone's going to be like, you're incredible. And it says that God has to like come down to see what they built. Like, oh, what's, what's going on down there? You know, he has to lean down to see their tower. I love that they're kind of mocked for their huge ambitions. But this is, this is silly here, right? But I mean, how many... Towers um, have been built in this world so that someone can put their name on it and be impressive and look at how great this person is. He's got a name on a huge building. How many projects, how many um, artistic works, how many career things have been all about building our ego? And let, let me prove to everybody that I am better than anyone that's been before me. Um, it is so bankrupt, and we keep finding ourselves getting back into this again and again and again. Um, I don't know if you've seen the movie Founder. Um, it's about the, the like, um, sort of expansion of McDonald's. Um, but it's a really fascinating uh, movie. And uh, basically, this guy um, stumbles across McDonald's, the restaurant that, that already exists. And it's this beautiful, like, hamburger restaurant. And it's, like, a lovely culture. People love eating there. The food's great. And, and it's fast service and everything. And, and this guy is just, like, fascinated with um, the production, it's McDonald's, and he, so he comes on to expand it, and he begins to, like, see there's, there's, there's money to be made in expanding this, like, faster, quicker, and so the, the quality gets less, the cost goes down, the ability to franchise and make it more cookie cutter and speed it up and everything, and it, and it goes all over the world, and this guy basically takes something that was a beautiful restaurant where people are, um, you know, thriving, flourishing, having a nice little community, and makes it into this global thing that's all about uh, his fame, his ego, his power, his wallet, um, ultimately. I, I always wonder, like, do people in movies like this get a fair shake? Like, maybe it didn't go down quite like that, but I feel like I'm pretty safe hating on McDonald's, you know? Like, we all eat there, but we all kind of pretend like we don't, so. Um, <clears throat> but that's it. I mean, so often in, in society, we're, we're like, um, we're like, okay, yeah, let's take these good things, and then we just, we just ruin them, right, with mass production and faster, quicker, less concern for the people involved, and it becomes about us. One thing we've learned about human society is that if something can be done, something ultimately will be done. Um, so, so we get more and more technologies, and if we, if we can send a rocket ship to Mars, we're going to do it, right? If we can um, get a whole lot more people like working to mass produce something to make an iPhone cheaper, then we will do it, right? If we can create a weapon that's capable of destroying the entire planet, we absolutely will do that, right? And nobody's stopping to be like, hang on, should we like expand this technology in this way? We just, we just do it because we can do it. And all of this is simply human beings taking the concept of work and we're putting it towards ends that are different than God's um, intention for it. It's not thinking about um, flourishing or anything like that. Think of the Industrial Revolution. Um, a beautiful time in history where it's like we, get, we got these means of production and we just like cranked it up and we're like, yeah, let's, let's produce more. Like maybe we can, you know, get more food to more people. That's fantastic, right? Maybe we can make more cars so other people can drive them. Maybe we can um, get goods and, and things like out there faster and faster. But what we discovered in the process, if you've done any like history class studying on the Industrial Revolution, there's always a negative tone to the whole thing because this is when we learned that we needed to start doing like child labor laws, you know, like maybe, maybe kids shouldn't be working 18 hours a day in factories, you know? And, um, and so we get some of these laws in because we see 
that work itself, if it goes unchecked because of the fall, because of sin entering the world, because of everyone wanting to go it alone, we bend the good stuff God's made toward negative ends. And we've seen this with, um, with women in the workplace, and there's often a, um, and, and is still often a disparity in what men get paid versus women, right? And how, how women are treated in, honestly, every area of society. And it's this terrible thing that, that stays and sticks around and is this problem that has to continually be addressed. Um, we see it with uh, racism getting into our work world. They'll do studies where they show, you know, you'll, they'll put the same uh, resume out to companies, one with a white-sounding name, one with a black-sounding name, and the, the white-sounding name gets way more interviews than the other one simply based on, like, our perception of what that person might be like. Everything about our world in the wake of the fall is, is it's, it's the good things that God created. Work itself is a good thing. All of it is the good things that God created being used um, towards negative ends. And we find ourselves just going down and down and down. And the things that should promote human flourishing, that should give us, like we should, we should enjoy going to work. We should feel great about the things that we do. Um, and yet so often it gets twisted by our own desires for money, success, power, those kinds of things, or somebody else's that makes the experience miserable for us. And so work that's meant to be good— um, gets twisted. We, we know what it's like. You guys have all seen, um, like, when a pastor uses their vocation. So, like, a pastor is, like, um, given the opportunity to speak on God's behalf. It's a beautiful, um, uh, chilling uh, privilege to get to do that, to get to care for people. But you see what happens when a pastor uses that to kind of build fame, build a platform, get better known, gain more influence. And before you know it, that pastor is manipulating people for their own ends, whether that's financial or sexual or uh, just power, status, whatever. We see that happening, and we see that. Like, I, I, I talk with my neighbors and my friends that aren't church people at all, but are like, yeah, that's so gross when you see a pastor using um, the God-given gifts and opportunities that they've been given to twist it to those ends. It's terrible, right? I, I, so, I agree. That's terrible. I, I don't have any plans along those lines, okay? Um, but I also want to submit to you all that I think that when we step out of here into the business world, we're also taking the God-given gifts and opportunities that we have, and when that gets twisted towards uh, manipulating people, um, gaining a platform, gaining influence, getting the things that you want, rather than promoting human flourishing and caring for humans, I think it's just as bad. It's just as bad if a pastor does it in, in this setting with these gifts that God gives and in the business setting. Like, it's, it's the same thing. We have a calling that we're sent out to do. And the whole thing is saying, okay, I'm going to resist uh, what led Adam and Eve to reject God in the beginning. And I'm going to pursue God in the midst of everything that I'm given to do. So in Genesis 3, how does God deal with this? The, the curse gets uh, introduced. And so God then speaks. First he speaks to the serpent, and the serpent gets cursed, and eventually his head's going to be crushed by the descendant of, her, um, of the woman, and that's going to be ultimately Jesus. And we'll talk about that on Good Friday and on Easter. But then he turns to the woman, to Eve, and he says, I will surely multiply your pain and childbirthing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. So these are tough words. This is the consequences of sin for Eve. It, it implies, I think, that childbearing wouldn't necessarily have to be painful. So ladies, I'm sorry. Like, this is just humanity. Like it's, that stinks. It also looks at, so these are good things. Uh, 
procreation, bringing kids into the world. That's a good thing, but it's now marked by pain because the world is broken. Um, a marriage relationship, any relationship we have, now is marked by this like power struggle, this, this, um, this aggression towards each other, and that is a, a result of even the good things in this world, these relationships we have being marked. Um, sin, sin destroys even the good things. Look at what he says to Adam in the next verses. To Adam he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How's this for an uplifting message, right? <clears throat> what I think you're seeing here is when sin entered the world, um, Augustine said it like this. He says, sin becomes its own punishment. So sin, sin becomes its own, it, it starts to like hurt, the th- like we, we suffer at the hands of our own sin, and obviously at the hands of the people around us. And so everything just starts to fall, uh, like fall apart. It, it's like the stuff of this world. Now, now you're still going to eat, you're still going to work the ground, work still is around, but now it's going to be like, a sweaty affair where you're just like breaking your back to get the, the ground to produce what you want it to. Um, there's going to be frustration. There's going to be thorns and thistles. Like you're going to eat of it in pain. Like all, all of these good things still are going to come to you, but they're going to come with this weight on it. I think it's saying that like the stuff of the world is resisting you. So like a carpenter uh, trying to build a building, the stuff that he's working with is kind of resisting this molding, the forming and filling that God gave us to do in Genesis 1 and 2. It now works against us. Um, I, I, like my dad is a, um, my dad's a do-it-yourself kind of a guy, always has been, and he would always uh, enjoy involving me in his projects of like whatever, you know? And, um, and so now I have like some level of appreciation for it, although I still believe in hiring people to do things that know how to do it better than I do. Um, but I, I can appreciate some, but at the time I hated it. I remember changing the brakes on the car, like drum brakes in the back. My dad really didn't know exactly what he was doing. And my dad also, he believes in doing it yourself, but he does not believe in the right tool for the right job. That's not him at all. <laughs> so we're just like a couple of, couple of screwdrivers and you're prying stuff and you just end up getting stabbed with a screwdriver. Like it's just miserable. And you're like, yeah, man, this world fights back. We try to do something good with it, but it's like out to get us too, you know, and we experience that. The, the people of the world are resisting God's will and God's design. And so we, we experience the frustration of there's people all around us that are just resisting the good things that God wants to do in the world. It's so frustrating. The problem is that we ourselves are part of that resisting of what God wants to do. And so everything about our interactions, including our work, um, takes on this, um, this heaviness and this painfulness um, where sin becomes its own punishment. Vishal Mengalwadi is an um, uh, Indian theologian and philosopher, and he, um, he talks about going to Europe, and he was trying to travel on the train system in Europe, and he like, couldn't figure out the machines or whatever, and so he's asking uh, some, some travelers, some American travelers, like, hey, how do, you, how do I do this? And they're like, oh, don't worry about it. Just hop over the turnstile. We've been doing that for weeks, traveling around Europe, and like, nobody's like, said anything. And, um, and his reflection as a theologian and philosopher is... Um, it's a great idea, right? You can get on the, if you can get on the train for free, why not get on the train for free? But what he says is, when we do this, um, what it does is it makes everything expensive for itself. It becomes its own punishment because now uh, the, the train companies, they like don't have enough money to do what they're doing. So now they have to hire attendants to check the tickets, which makes the tickets pricier for all the rest of us. And everything just kind of snowballs and the world gets worse and worse and worse as we um, fight against this whole thing. The, the world we live in is just a a punishing 
miserable place in so many ways, and the environments, the work environments we, we create become like punitive. It's like we're being punished by even going to work. Uh, one of my favorite shows, I'm sure my favorite show, is The Office. And um, The Office has plenty of inappropriate things. We, we live in a fallen world, and so I'm just telling you that's just why that is the way it is. But it is so funny. And the reason it's funny is because they're in a modern office place, which is an inherently dehumanizing space, you know? Modern offices were not built like, how do we really help people be people, you know? And like enjoy the work they're doing. It's like, no, how do we, how do we cut costs and maximize productivity? How do we get the most out of these employees and um, while still being like somewhat legal in that? That's like what a modern office is. So this show is funny because it's people in an inherently dehumanizing setting acting like human beings. And so they're messing around, they're joking with each other, they're like, they're like marrying each other. It's just, it's just a lovely, uh, funny show, and I love it. And it just, it just shows like the sin of the world, the fallenness of the world. It gets us into these spaces where you can do good things, um, but we, we just have this knack for making it hurt more than it should. And, and a lot of this just comes from the curse itself. But we need to see this. I, I am too much of an optimist to leave it there, okay? We need to see this. Even in... Even in this, first of all, in the, in the section that I didn't read about the curse coming to the serpent, there's this promise that like Satan and everything he's accomplished and everything he's been working for will be undone and his head will be crushed. And so there is a perfect future for work um, coming and for all of life coming. And that is beautiful. We're, we will pause this series to remember that next week um, on Easter. But there's also, even in this curse... We can see what God's saying to Adam and, and everything. There's, the ground is cursed. There's pain. There's thorns and thistles. There's sweat now on your face. Like All of this is going to be hard, but what is still happening, even while that's happening, is this. Still pain, but you're going to eat, right? Thorns and thistles, but the earth is going to produce, and you're going to eat. Um, sweat of your face, but still you're going to eat. There is in the world still this promise and this hope that like things still work. God's design still functions. There is opportunity for life and health and growth. And I think this framework then that we see, the framework I think keeps us oriented, the framework of seeing, okay, the, the, there's this good creational design that God put into the work that we do, that helps us see a target, right? And then understanding, though, that the doctrine of the fall, the fact that everything's stained by sin, what that does is that, like, knowing that keeps us believe from, uh, it keeps us from believing that, like, in our work we find our ultimate significance. That we, it keeps us from believing that everything's going to be great and I'll be happy if I can just get this job or that job or this promotion or if I can just work with this person. Um, it keeps us from being frustrated and feeling like we're in the wrong career often. Um, because we recognize, well, yeah, the fact that life is difficult doesn't mean I'm doing the wrong thing. It just means I live in a fallen world. There's this huge grass is greener vibe that we're experiencing and have been for some time. I think COVID was a wake-up wake call and an invitation for us to be like, man, I, I don't like what I'm doing. Let me figure this out again. And a lot of that is healthy, right? There's times that God issues us into a new season. But remember, every pasture is, is uh, you know, may look greener, but it still is tainted by the curse. Um, it hurts. It's frustrating. You're not going to find your ultimate fulfillment in that alone. If you remember, in the fall, we went through the book of Ecclesiastes. And Ecclesiastes has a lot to say about work. Um, and it talks about how he's like, he threw himself into his work. Maybe I'll find meaning and pleasure and significance in the work that I do. And he found at the end, like with everything, no. Um, it's all just a vanity. It's all chasing after the wind. It doesn't satisfy in the end. 
he observed in Ecclesiastes 4 that um, he says, I see that, that a person's work comes from their envy of their neighbor. And so looking and saying, so much of the work we do is just because we're jealous and we want to get one up on somebody else. We want to have what somebody else has or better. Um, and so he's seeing like, no, this is, everything is stained with, with this sin. And so what do we do with that? I think what we have to do is recognize, okay, I know this is not going to be my ultimate fulfillment. It's a calling I have from God. I'll find joy in doing it. I can have fellowship with God while I do it, but it's not going to be my ultimate pursuit. It's not the bottom line for me. Like Delia said, like maximizing profit is not what my life was designed to be. Now there's a place for profits. It's a, it's one of the bottom lines, but it's one of many bottom lines. Uh, a business, if it's going to work, has to be profitable, but it also has to, uh, if it's going to fit into the world that God made, it has to care for people. It has to provide for people. It has to be a, a loving place where humans can flourish. I, I think, you know, what I want to kind of say in wrapping this up is, um, if you look at sin on the stuff of the world, sin is a stain, but it's not the fabric itself. Um, so if I, if I spill coffee on this shirt, I, I won't because it's not white. Um, but if I did spill coffee on this, um, I like this shirt. And so what I would do is I wouldn't throw the whole shirt away. I would, I would wash it, right? I would get cleaned and, I, and then I'd be like, okay, good. Shirt's good. The stain's gone. Shirt's good. Um, I think that's what sin is like in our work lives. Um, there is, everything is broken. Everything's stained as a matter of fact, there's, there's whole professions that exist just because sin exists, right? So think if we had Josh Hudapea that's up here as a physical therapist. The whole medical profession wouldn't exist if sin hadn't entered the world because you wouldn't have pain and um, suffering. Um, we wouldn't have attorneys if this was a perfect world. Um, the attorneys are lovely, but they have to deal with the sin of other people, okay? Um, so there's like two attorneys in our church, and I'm trying to be respectful of them. Um, uh, just... Everything is stained, but the, but the sin is what we fight about, not the work itself, right? So, so removing the stain of sin, I think, is what God is all about. He's inviting us in. We still get to work and keep the garden, like God said in Genesis 2.15. Um, but, but that's it. And, the, and it, here's what we have to keep in mind. Remember, the church is not meant to be a, um, it's not only a refuge from the world. So there's a sense in which, man, go to your job, it beats you down, you're feeling um, isolated and exhausted, and the church then becomes this place of like healing and hope. But remember, though, Jesus sends us out into the world. So, so where you go from here, this is important, it's good, it's, it's vital. But where you go from here is just as important as what you gain while you're here. Um, we, we need each other for that feeding. But um, Leslie Newbegin, this uh, great missiologist, he said, only half of a pastor's work is to gather people together for worship. The other half is to send them back to their daily tasks, equipped to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world. If we forget this second part, the other can be positively dangerous. He's saying our gathering together, if we don't recognize the need uh, for sending each other back out, is actually dangerous, can be dangerous. Um, and so we need to see Jesus sends us into the world. There's still work to be done. And the, the place that we do the things God calls us to do, so much of that happens in our work lives. What is it all for? What are we trying to do? Um, it, it looks like this. We are, Jesus taught us to pray in the, in the Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What it means for God's kingdom to come here on earth that we're taught to pray for is that we see God's will being done. The same way that it's done in heaven, we're trying to see God's will being done on earth. And that looks like here, certainly in a church service, it also looks like at your job, with your coworkers, with your clients, with your bosses, like all of this, with our community and society as a whole, all of it, we're trying to see God's will being done in those spaces. We, we unfortunately have to fight against 
the fall and all of its effects, which affects the physical world, it, it affects our relationships, and it affects our own hearts and how we do things. But the call is to be active in all that. And, and what I would love, I would love for us just to like, kind of going out from today, is actually taking uh, something that Delia said about recognizing that it is, it is um, it's, it's like recognizing the idolatry of what the world is calling us to in our work. The world will constantly tell us that our work is about our significance, that our value is tied to what we accomplish or how high we get on the ladder. Um, we are so prone to believe that we have something to prove in our work lives, that we've got to make a certain amount of money if we're going to do this or that. We have to have these accolades or these things or a career that looks like this or that. You, you, there's jobs and positions that you have to avoid, otherwise you're going to be embarrassed in front of people around you. There's all these things about work and what it means to get ahead. And I love Delia saying, like, I, I've got to not be a self-made person. I need to just trust God. Like, if he wants my business profitable, he'll bring the profits, right? He'll, he'll work in that, and it gives us a peace, and it gives us a wholeness, and it gives us a healthier trajectory that we're all fighting for. And so what I'd love for us to do is just kind of um, hold our work before the Lord lightly. See it as a calling from him, whether it's, whether you're like me, a pastor working with um, church people, or whether you're, um, you know, doing, doing tough stuff. Uh, a lot of you guys have really hard jobs with really difficult people. Whatever it is, just holding it before the Lord, helping him to help expose to us the idolatry that exists in these different fields and pursuits, and just asking him to, to lead us there in grace. So we're, we're going to close off um, this part by taking communion together. Um, Carly Prey, our youth director, is going to come up and lead us in communion. Um, and this is the perfect way to, to seal off this time. Oh, and also all our youth are going to join us for that too. So enjoy the cavalcade of teenagers uh, coming in. Don't always get to use the word cavalcade, but there it is. Um, <clears throat> and uh, let, me, let me just kind of pray for us as we prepare our, our hearts for communion here. Lord, thank you so much um, for this moment and this day to be able to see and remember who you are and what you call us to, what you invite us to with regard to the work that you've given us. Lord, thank you that you are a good God that sees and cares about where we're at. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters here as we um, as we see our work, as we see the pain um, that it is, the, the frustration that it so often brings into our lives, I pray that you would be doing that work of healing our hearts and calling us away from all the wrong turns, away from all the dead ends. But Lord, help us to see, even this week, help us to see signs of life and hope in the work that you've called us to do. Um, may we listen to your voice in that. May we find your, our, our dependence on you and find our provision for that in who you are. And Lord, thank you that all of that starts at the cross as you laid down your life for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.